How is it that the Bible can be used for oppression or liberation? My guest today says it can be used for either. Depends on how Christians respond to it. Joe Lumen is one of the most voluminous creators I know on social media. She's a writer, creator, TikToker, social media influencer, and she calls herself a reluctant pastor. She also challenges social norms as a brilliant expositor of the Bible while not looking exactly like what we expect an expositor of the Bible to look like or sound like in America today. You are not going to want to miss this edition of the Post-Evangelical Podcast. So hang on, and let me remind you, if you enjoy what I do, would you consider being part of the Pastor Paul Support Community for as little as $5.99 a month, up to $100 a month, you can make a big difference in helping me get my message out to the world that God is not mad at them and continue to provide tons of free content for everyone. Would you please go to the website, pastor-paul.com, and check it out and see all the ways you can help me do what I do. In fact, you can pause the podcast to do it right now. That would be awesome. Go to pastor-paul.com. Now to our guest, Joe Lumen, as we seek out emotional and spiritual well-being together in a post-evangelical world. Enjoy this edition of the Post-Evangelical Podcast. Joe, I'm, I'm glad you're hanging out with me today. Being somebody from Colombia who comes to the United States, your family finds sort of an evangelical religion, and then that begins to deconstruct as we're all sort of in that space. Talk a little bit about what started unwinding evangelicalism for you. Yeah, I think there were several things. I think that I was um, deconstructing, for lack of a better word, word from the time that I was in college, taking classes on, you know, the Psalms and taking classes on the prophets. And um, a lot of things, a, a lot of the classes that I was taking were classes that were being taught by either atheists, because I was in a non-religious school and I was learning about the Bible from a literature perspective. So my teachers were both atheists and Jewish people. And even the ones that were Christians were not sharing a Christian, like, a theological perspective it was all about literature and and so i started asking a lot of questions and so when i moved to the us and a lot of evangelicals were saying like this is what it means i because i was so steeped in the system i would be like okay and i would gaslight myself into be into agreeing with them but deep down i was like this doesn't sit well with me like it doesn't feel right and so then i got to my master's degree which was at a christian university point loma nazarene here in san diego and at Point Loma, there was a lot more room for conversation and for questions than inside of the church. And so I remember we were having these, uh, my professor was Scott Daniels, who is a pastor in the Nazarene tradition. And he, we were talking about Jonah, the book of Jonah. And we sat with the book of Jonah and there were no answers. There were just a lot of questions uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of questions about what it means then. This book, this ancient book that is telling a story of a reluctant uh, prophet that is angry 
that God wants to love people that in his estimation are evil and wicked. And we were sitting, we said, what does that mean for us today? Like, who are the people that we hate, that we don't want to welcome, that we're angry, that God wants to show mercy to? And sitting through all of those conversations was beautiful because we were talking about, like, how do Christians treat Muslims and how do Christians treat non-Christians in general? And we have to sit with that because... Uh, Jonah wasn't sent to convert people to Judaism, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. We start sitting with all of those conversations in college, and I'm bringing those conversations to my uh, uh, work setting, to my the, the church where I was working at, and they are met with, like, a total resistance, like, absolute, what are you talking about? Shut up. Um, and I, I got to a place where I just couldn't sit in that the discomfort of what I was reading, the discomfort of what I was studying, the discomfort of how I wanted to express my faith and the ways in which I was demanded to express my faith inside of the church. I, I couldn't mm. I couldn't resolve that dissonance anymore. And it, it actually got way worse when I had children because I couldn't resolve the dissonance between the ways I wanted to raise my children and the ways in which evangelical Christianity was demanding that I raise them. I couldn't. And I couldn't I didn't love myself enough back then because of church trauma. I didn't, and, and toxic theology that demands that you distance yourself from you. I didn't love myself enough to leave for me, but mm. I loved my children enough to leave for them. Now I love myself a lot and I leave any place for me. But back then it was my children and not wanting to betray them that gave me perhaps the courage to say, I cannot continue to exist with this amount of cognitive dissonance in my life. Yeah, wow. There, there's a lot in there to unpack. I, I always say, I think every Christian ought to once a year be required to read Jonah chapter four and consider themselves Jonah and say to God, whatever God looks like to them, yeah. I would rather be dead than live in a world where you have mercy on those people. And we figure I out who those people are um, and hear that because I do hear people say, well, they repented, but Jonah's complaint was, I didn't want to come here because I knew you were going to have mercy on these people. It had nothing to do with their repenting. Nope. He, 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 he did care. not want God to have mercy on them. And, yeah. yeah not here. He wanted to keep mercy for him and his people mm -hmm. only. And if you sit with the reper the 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 societal repercussions of that and how Christians continue to meet other people with that exact same energy of Jonah, with the same energy of why are you having mercy on LGBTQ people? And why are you having mercy mm -hmm. on black people? And why are you having mercy on Muslim and Jewish and atheist? And why are you having mercy on the other that we've created? And if they, if all of us as Christians sat with the discomfort of that and how little love there is in that, perhaps we'd have a better track record with other peoples. Yeah. And the book ends with no good resolution. The book no. of Jonah ends with God saying to Jonah, you're upset that this plant died, that you had nothing to do with, and you want me to destroy these people and their livelihood. And that's the end of the book, which I love. And by the way, I love to tell Christians, Nineveh happens to be the modern day city of Mosul, which was the capital of ISIS. And so again, put yourself if would we want God to destroy ISIS and God would say to us, do you do well to believe that way? Right. It, it, and see, if you let 
the Bible speak back to you in that way, in the way in which it will challenge all of your theological uh, absolutes, all your certainty, then the Bible is the most beautiful of tools in order to be able to lead us to liberation. It's beautiful. It's a stunning. It is a horrible thing to use it as a weapon of oppression. But you can do either. We all have the option of taking these books and these narratives and using them as weapons of oppression or allowing for them to be the tools of liberation that they were always meant to be. And yeah. the question is, how do you want to engage them, right? Do you want to use them to beat people over the head and tell them how inadequate they are? Or do you want to let it inform you of this divinity, whatever it means to you, uh, and this humanity that we share together and make you a better person? And, and we get to choose and sitting there. That's beautiful stuff. And I, one of the, the things I, I want to delve in with you today is, is you talking about uh, religion as a, a mechanism of colonization. And I think some of us hear this word and particularly uh, a white male like me, a white evangelical pastor from the white cultural evangelical tradition. And I hear things about religion being colonizing and colonizers what what does that tell me more about what that term means and what it meant to you as you were pastoring in evangelical circles and and begin to become and grow discomforted with that yeah so colonization is the is this process right of um, settling and taking control over an entire area uh, an entire ideology is this process of taking over either a land or a people or both and demanding that they adapt to your ways, that they adapt to your ideologies uh, and they take give over control to you. Uh, and so that's what happened with a lot of European colonizers that moved to all over the world, really, <laughs> but moved to Africa and moved to what we call America today, the entire landmass and Southeast Asia. That is what is still happening, is moving uh, into these places without having any regard for the people in there, without having any respect for them and believing that they know better than them, that they are superior to them and therefore they should adopt their ways without having any curiosity for them or anything like that. And the colonization of Africa and the uh, and America, the entire landmass, not just North America or South America, but the whole thing, um, mm -hmm. was propelled by Christian theology. It was propelled by a lot of Christian ideologies. And there were three specific uh, papal bulls. And when I say they were papal bulls, people are like, oh, so it was Catholics. Yeah, at the time, there were no Protestants, so it was Christians. Um, and this is the tradition that Protestants come from. We cannot um, distance ourselves from that tradition, especially right. considering that the settlement that we got in North America were Protestants, much, I mean, a little later. But what led to this colonizing behavior and to the enslavement of a lot of different peoples, uh, especially people of color, was a lot of Christian theology and these papal bulls that asserted that because the sovereign, and the sovereign where at this point it was the um, Spanish and Portuguese sovereigns were set in place as authorities from God. Therefore, any lands that were not Christian lands, any lands that didn't have a sovereign that had been set up by the Christian God, were up for grabs for Christians. Uh, and any peoples that were not Christian peoples were also okay to be enslaved by Christians in order to, quote unquote, save them. Uh, and so here we have what begins 
hundreds of years of dehumanizing non-Christians in, especially indigenous non-Christians in Africa and what we call America today in horrific ways in the name of Christianity is the way in which uh, Manifest Destiny was justified, in which the Monroe Doctrine was justified, is the way in which it justified taking children away from parents, uh, from indigenous parents, in order to send them to schools, to indoctrinate them into Catholic and Christian, like, um, Catholic and Protestant theologies and ideologies, converting them, changing their name, cutting their hair, demanding that they dress differently because their ways of being were considered sinful by Christians without any regard for their ways of being, for why they did what they did. And we know now that the effects of that are causing for the entire earth to be hurt. Uh, we're hurting the earth. Capitalism, which is also coming from Christianity, is hurting the earth. The ways in which we move and take land and move food from one corner of the world to the other in order to be able to make more money is hurting us all. And so, and Christianity is behind the whole entire thing. And so, that's what I mean when I say that Christianity has been used as a weapon of colonization and a weapon of white supremacy, capitalism and patriarchy in the world. And therefore, it has been used as a weapon of oppression uh, that is harming not only the oppressed, but also those doing the oppression. Because when you are demanded by your theology to dehumanize entire people groups, you're losing your humanity yourself. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big one to delve into right there. Um, and I do want to do that, but I'm thinking, so, and what, what should a response of a person like me be to understanding that, that my religious tradition was used to enslave indigenous peoples around the world and maybe particularly in North America or in the Western hemisphere where I have so greatly benefited from that? Right. How, what, what would be an appropriate response or do you have advice for that? Totally, I do. <laughs> um, so there is this there is this concept in Judaism called teshuva, right? Like repentance, real repentance, and real repentance requires for us to acknowledge the harm publicly, acknowledge the harm in all of the ways that it needs to be acknowledged, acknowledge the things that we've done with our traditions to cause harm. And then it requires for us to repair that harm. And that reparation can come in many different forms. One of the forms is one, a very important one is addressing all of the theologies that cause harm and abuse to people. We cannot be married to theologies more than we are to the well-being of humans. So mm. I've told people I'm still a Christian, but if to be a Christian, I have to accept abusive theologies, I'll drop Christianity tomorrow. Christianity is not more important to me than the well-being of people. So far, I've been able to hold Christianity loosely still mm -hmm. and not cause harm. But the moment that I'm demanded to accept theologies like uh, you know, substitutionary atonement that teaches that God, like God sent his son to die for my sins, that's abusive and harmful. If I have to believe that to be a Christian, I'll drop Christianity. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I'll drop it because people are more important to me. And so that's that's one thing. The second thing is holding our own accountable. People love to say that Christians that have done harm are not real Christians. They are not my people. No, they are. They are my siblings. They are your siblings. They are our people. And I'm a woman of color. And I still will hold Christians accountable because this is my tradition, because this is what I've studied, because this is where I have mm -hmm. expertise. So I'll hold my own accountable. When there, The amount of anti-Semitism inside of Christian spaces is wild. The amount of xenophobia is insane. The amount of... Um, uh, 
Islamophobia, the amount of behavior that is just so gross. And I'm the first to take him to task and be like, as a Christian, as a, as a fellow Christian, as my brother, as my sister, as my sibling, I'm telling you, this is abusive and harmful. Because if we don't do that, then indigenous people, Muslim people, Jewish people, non-Christians, atheists, all of them have to do that. Yeah. And silence, silence is complicity, right? Silence is complicity. And Absolutely. I hear Absolutely. it all the time from people. That's not my church. I'm sorry. If you're a Christian and you're not speaking up against it, you are complicit to you it. You are. You are. And you should be holding your churches accountable, your pastors accountable, asking pastors and churches, what are you doing to ensure that you are paying back? And I don't mean just financially. I mean also in time, in space, in offering mm -hmm. resources to the communities that as Christians, we have harmed so badly. How are, how are our spaces, how are churches being used to ensure that black, brown, indigenous people are being taken care of in our community? Are you even acquainted with the indigenous people, the black people, the brown people in your communities? Do you even know who they are, what they do? Do you build community with them? Do you talk to the Jewish people in your in your in your immediate communities to the Muslims in your communities? Do you talk to them? Do you build bridges with them and say, hey, I'm a Christian and I want to learn from you and I want us to do better, to do things together? So there are so many things that you can do and holding your own accountable is one of the biggest ways to repair harm and rejecting loudly toxic abusive theology that is causing harm to people. And that includes, you know, LGBTQ non-affirming theology that includes any misogynistic theology. I, the most, the majority of the times when I see misogynistic theology online, the bulk of the people holding the person accountable are women. Where are our brothers holding their own accountable? Where are our brothers saying to these misogynistic pastors, you don't get to speak like that about our sisters. You don't. You know, and so we have gotten so used because white supremacy teaches us all that we're individuals and we don't mess with anybody else's issues. Um, right. We have been so used to not showing up for one another, to not caring for one another well enough. Um, you know, and so we, we think that it's always being nosy to say, hey, this is not cool. Not on yeah. my watch. Not on my watch. I love you enough. I love you enough to let you know that what you're doing is hurting an entire community. And I love that community and I love you enough to say, nah, absolutely fucking not. Sorry, I curse a lot, by the way. That's okay, we do that okay. here. So I, I, okay, I say a, a curse word a day chases religious demons away. So yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so those are two things that you can do, like start there. And then depending on your expertise, depending on the tools that you have, depending on the influence that you have in your world, how... Like you start knowing, like, how can I use these in order to be able to bring um, justice, you know, true justice in the world? And so it depends. Like my expertise is theology. That's what I have all of my expertise in. So what I do is push back against toxic theology publicly and privately. And I use a lot of time to do that time that I'm not getting paid for just because it's the right thing to do. Have you ever had a question for me and just couldn't figure out how you could get to me to give you an answer? Well, thank you for letting me interrupt this fascinating conversation 
to give you an answer for how you might be able to do that, to interact with me on a regular basis. If you join the Pastor Paul support community, you can reach out to me through the community chat board. You can sign up for my newsletter on my website at pastor-paul.com, and it gives you access to my community chat board to ask a question anytime you like. Or you can add a bit of financial support to that for $5.99 to $100 a month to help me continue to provide tons of free content for you and everyone else. On our community chat board, you can ask a question. You can get my answer and, and watch the response of others to your questions as well. And you can just share this deconstruction journey with others on a journey just like you. We are seeking out emotional and spiritual well-being together in this post-evangelical world. And one of the best ways to do that is be a part of the Pastor Paul support community at pastor-paul.com. Just go to the website, get that login, click the support Pastor Paul button, and you'll get your opportunity to sign up and get access to our community chat board. And I look forward to interacting with you there very soon. Now back to our podcast in the post-evangelical world of Pastor Paul on the Post-Evangelical Podcast and pastor-paul.com. One example that I'm giving people today in the season is ask any any church that you have some association with, particularly if it's one you're attending, ask the leadership, do you have a policy for handling a woman who brings a complaint of abuse? So that, so that you don't, if the abuse accusation against somebody that is a friend of yours, you have a policy in place to protect everyone in the situation and the churches have been in hand, handling this internally for so long and handled it so poorly yeah. in large part because of our complementarian beliefs. Yeah. Um, I think every church, and, and I know when I was a, a senior pastor, our our liability carrier required us to have a policy of this, right. but we should anyway to just say, this is what's going to happen if somebody brings an abuse accusation, this is how we're gonna handle it. Yeah, and who are the people speaking into that process? Because if only right. men are sitting down to decide how that process is going to be handled, you're probably not gonna have a good policy, even if you do have a policy. So yeah. who are the voices speaking into that? Are you doing anti-racist work? Are you doing anti-bias work? Um, what happens with disabled people? Like the more that you know, the more that you realize, the more you're like, hey, in this church, we don't have accessibility for disabled folks. We have, I remember I was at a church and they were using strobe lights. And I remember someone telling me like, anybody with epilepsy could not come. I had never considered that until this person told me, I was like, you're correct. Nobody could come to this church if they have epilepsy. They will mm. like the strobe lights alone. And what is the purpose of these strobe lights? Like, why do we have strobe lights <laughs> for yeah. what? And so even considering those little things, you know, and telling like in your community, there should be community, like there should be open communication lines to say, hey, you know, we are ostracizing some members of our community. And what are we going to do about it? So being an active participant of a community means that you use your voice to ensure that everybody is safe and has the right tools to be able to participate in community together. And I think that's that's so important because when we talk about colonizing uh, with religion and we say, well, those things happened in the past and yeah, okay, maybe I need to apologize or be sorry. But 
are we missing in what you're saying there? That, and, and this is something that I have just very recently learned that we require people in essence to become white to be a part of our churches, particularly yep. in American and evangelical spaces. Like you have to adopt our language and our traditions and our dress, you yep. name it. And, and yep. so would, would you consider that a form of colonizing of religion even today? Yes, absolutely. That is a any assimilation, any call for assimilation is a call for colonization. Um, yeah. It's just modern colonization that we call by different names. But if you're calling people for you to be accepted in this community, you have to change who you are at the core. You have to dress a certain way and you have to behave a certain way and you have to be heterosexual and you have to be monogamous and you have to be and you have to be and you have to be. You are taking agency away from people and asking them to mold themselves around a vision that you have for them and not the, their true selves, which in my opinion is the Christ in them. So it's anti-Christ to tell them to be something they are not in order to be able to belong to your communities. Wow. And so that does include, in my mind, and again, this is something that I've recently learned. I, I, am a, I have been a part of the problem as much as a part of the solution. <laughs> That's Haven't we all? LGBTQ plus peoples have to be accepted and and not just ex accepted as as tolerated to come and give their tithes and be in yeah. the seat, but to be affirmed in who they are and allowed to be a part, fully a part of the community, which means right. leadership, uh, leadership teams, salaried positions, working in the children's ministry. Hearing their voices, letting them letting them speak into the community, letting them shape the community. Um, that's it's hard work, right? And I think that we've conflated inside of a lot of Christian spaces discomfort with sin. You mm. being uncomfortable with something doesn't mean that it's sin. Sin requires sin, in my opinion. Um, sin is missing the mark, right? That's that's the literal definition of sin to miss the mark. And to right. miss the mark, you have to actively be going against the Christ in you. That's to miss the mark. You know, when you go against the Christ in you, you hurt others, you hurt yourself, you you know. So for me, for instance, having a non-monogamous relationship is not missing the mark because that's not what I have been created to be but for you it might be and you mm -hmm. being uncomfortable with my non-monogamy is a you problem it doesn't mean that i'm sinful it means that you're uncomfortable and you need to deal right. with that discomfort so being able to have the conversations of what does it look like to sit with the discomfort of other people's choices that are literally not harming me at all what yeah. does that look like and we don't so have enough of those conversations because we just demand um uniformity and uniformity is in itself a violence yeah i think we did we get to your third point because i have other places i want to go but you you were doing three ways to decolonize i don't remember if we got all of them or not no i mean doing the doing the work of anti-bias oh, oh yeah that, that's the third one so doing the work of anti-bias um, education, like sitting down with all of your biases, sitting down to consider your biases, to consider the ways in which these systems of oppression have literally shaped who you are and a lot of the choices that you make, the responses that you have, the ways in which you exist in the world are shaped by the indoctrination of systems of oppression, including Christianity, not aside from Christianity, but systems of white supremacy.
supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy have shaped the way in which we exist in the world. And if we don't sit down to consider those things and heal from those things, we will continue to engage one another as products, as commodities, as disposable, as less than. So we have to address those things from within us. Uh, and stop being so concerned with, I want to be perceived as be as a good person. And instead, I want to be perceived as a healed person that can own that, yeah, there is fat phobia inside of me and racism inside of me. And I'm addressing it. This is how, and you cannot address things that you're not saying out loud. You cannot address things that you cannot acknowledge. And isn't it interesting that we're trying to pass laws now to make sure we're not learning the uncomfortable yes. truth of our, of our history and white supremacy. And and certainly it's, again, a learning process for me was to learn that there is a, a such thing as, as a white culture, because when we grow up white in the West, we just think we are culture. Culture is us, that, that to be right in culture is to be us. And certainly in college, I, I made these arguments with people like, you have to speak English if you live in the United States to function. And that is, now I'm learning, a, a colonizer's belief things, particularly when non-English speakers were first and, right. and have been here longer than us. So those are... And that is a, that is a legacy that was left for you. That is a legacy that was left for you by your ancestors, specifically the British Empire. The British Empire moved through the world and demanded English be the official language of the world. And, mm -hmm. and so that, that it came from colonization. It wasn't that one day all of us woke up and we're like, we should learn English. You know, like I learned English in Colombia. I didn't learn English in the, the United States. I learned English in Colombia. And most kids in Colombia learn English. A lot of kids in Colombia learn English, not mm -hmm. because we want to, but because the British Empire that has moved them to the US Empire has demanded the world do that for them because they walk around the world with entitlement issues. Like you need to learn to communicate with me. Okay, and we did, because empires do that. They demand things, and then we do it. Otherwise, we're met with violence. But what does it look like to consider, like, even think about meetings and things like that. They happen on U.S. time, always. Like, we never consider other people's times. It's yeah. everything is U.S. time, or even European, Western European time. But if it's further than that, it's like, well, wake up at 3 in the morning and meet us. Right? Because yeah. we don't deem anything more important than the West. Yeah, and then it becomes generational in that, uh, you know, older people, we have discomfort with younger people and their tattoos or their, uh, you know, there's a lot of different uh, language around sexuality and gender for our younger generations. And we're still trying to say, no, right is what we are. And, and I'm interested, so as, you, as you're talking about monogamy and these things, how, how have you rectified sort of a biblical belief of the code of the Bible, so to speak, and then yeah. again, being a lover of people rather than that legalism. Yeah, so the Bible doesn't have a code, um, you know? It, it doesn't, it's messy. It's full of human relationships that have trauma and abuse and repair of that abuse. And we have a king that was called good and just that had 700 wives. And concubines and what do we do with that because he was most definitely uh commodifying the bodies of these women uh, but he yeah. was called good and we have to sit with that discomfort and recognize that it wasn't good and we have to sit in the discomfort of you know uh, uh, uh queen esther that ha that was 
a slave like she didn't have a choice it's not like she could say to the king no um you know and then she's considered good and she did the thing that god asked her to do but did she because god isn't even mentioned in the whole entire book and we have to yeah. sit in all of that discomfort because there are no definite answers in the bible there is just sitting in the discomfort of being human and what we would That's do esther. I, I just did it. esther by the way is one of my favorites because i always like to tell christians she did God's work by being really good at sex. That that she <laughs> and really she you must are not have, wrong. Yes, she must have been really good in bed because the king didn't kill her for coming into the room. So absolutely, she did. And see, but the messiness of that, like, are women supposed to? Are we? Are we? Is that expected of us to yeah. sacrifice our bodies? To sacrifice our safety to sacrifice our humanity to sacrifice our freedom for the sake of others like is that an expectation or was that just her choice and was yeah. it her choice of was mordecai pushing her to do it and you know like and then and there are no answers i'm not giving answers to people i'm just right. asking you all to sit with the discomfort of all of that and consider all of that for you and so yeah. the bible to me is exactly that an invitation yeah. to sit down with the discomfort of oppression i mean the bible's filled with oppression, filled with yeah. oppression of the Jewish people, filled. And, and then this God that speaks to these people about oppression and about how they are loved, even though they are oppressed and how they, how he's there, they are there. God is there in spite of this oppression. And I've heard Jewish people today say that it's a miracle that Jewish people still believe in a God after all of the oppression that they have experienced for the last 2,500 years. And so we sit in that discomfort because the dualism of Christianity demands that we have answers and that we have a blueprint and that we look at the Bible as a blueprint for life. And instead, the Bible offers us a mirror to be able to look at ourselves and look at our pain and look at our trauma and look at our insecurities and say, what are we going to do with that? And how do I find the divinity within me to be able to show up in the world as the most healthy, most authentic, most Christ-like version of myself and not as an expression of the expectations of others for me or as a response to my trauma? And so the Bible to me is just that. It just offers me a mirror to be able to call bullshit on myself when I am acting out of trauma or out of insecurities. And the Bible is like, no, that's not your most authentic self. You're doing that because you're afraid or because you're filled with shame or because of past trauma. And that invitation to healing wholeness and being the most authentic version of yourself could not be a more important invitation. Like mm -hmm. it, it is what heals the world. It is what brings heaven on earth. And that doesn't happen individually. It happens in community too. It's a collective effort. That's why I love that Jewish people don't read the Bible alone, their Bible alone. They read it together because yeah. it's a mirror for me, but it's a mirror for us too. Like it's a mirror for all of us together and then me individually, both and. It cannot just be a mirror for me. It's, I love that. And it's a book I recommend to people a lot is, is a book called The Bible With and Without Jesus. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that, but it's... It's it's a it's written by uh, Jewish and Christian Bible scholars, and and trying to look at these different passages and and see the Jewish viewpoint of them and the Christian viewpoint and and what I love about it it, it was I learned this concept that you're talking about from it that Jewish people say we're in community and Scripture comes along with us and we say what does the Torah say about this that's pertinent to where we are today as opposed to Christians who are saying, what does 
this verse mean and how do we gather around the belief of it together? And if we disagree, then we're no longer together that yes, we have to the, separate. Yeah, it's the difference between what I call like it's the difference between what we together call orthopraxy and orthodoxy. Christians yeah. are very concerned with orthodoxy, having the right beliefs. Jewish people are more concerned with orthopraxy. And me personally, I'm more concerned with orthopraxy. What are the right actions? Um, yeah. You know, how, how do our beliefs inform the right actions? Not what are the right beliefs, but how do our beliefs inform the right actions? So orthopraxy becomes more important where you're concerned is how does my faith inform a healthy life? And not when your concern is how do I not lose belonging into a Christian community by, by acting in the right way? That's performative faith. And I'm not interested in that. Yeah. And, and a very logistical view of that is, you know, Jesus talking about if, if you lust, you know, pluck out your eye. Mm -hmm. You know, there weren't a lot of one eyed men walking around at the time because it wasn't saying literally pluck out your eye. It was saying, you know, be dutiful in looking up to taking your eye out if that's what it's going to take to start to treat women the way they ought to be treated and, and yep. uh, these things. And, and so then it, and what I think is so important about what you're saying and your message as a whole, then is it, it becomes so much less about does, you know, first Corinthians talk about homosexual relationships, or is it talking about inequality and in sexual relationships, which we can argue about all day long. Right. But you're more saying, how would Jesus have walked with homosexual people if he were incarnate here in California and, today? Right. And and, and what would it look like for you, for you, to be a good sibling to a queer person right now? Not based on your beliefs, not based on what you want, but based on their needs. What would it look like to sit down with a queer person, whatever queerness is to them, um, and say, how can I be a good friend to you? How can I be a good sibling to you? How can I love you really well? And, and that doesn't mean that we tell, like, we let people tell us, go kill somebody for me. That's not love. We know that. But right. if they say, I need, this is who I am, and I need you to accept me as I am, we can love them well that way. Yeah. And and use my pronouns. How hard is that for us to show? It's exactly. Honor? Like, people feel so loved when you use the right pronouns for them. And when you mess up, you say, oh, I'm so sorry. And you correct yourself. It's such an easy way to love people. And to double down and say, I don't want to do it because of whatever reasons, because my religion. Okay, then you're weaponizing your religion to to quite literally do the opposite of what it says, which is love people. <laughs> it's a cognitive dissonance for me that he's like, I don't, I can't do that. Talking with Joe, Joe Lumen here, and um, we're going to have uh, an extra podcast coming up for the Pastor Paul support community. But But let's finish with this. You have some real knockdown, drag out fights with people on social media that I love to watch and root you on in them all the time. Um, yet you still find yourself saying you're a Christian in this season. And that's a really hard thing for a lot of people in our space these days. So how do you find yourself still using the term Christian to describe yourself? Yeah. So I don't even believe there is a God that is a being. I don't believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe in Jesus, the historical man, and I believe that Jesus, the historical man, was killed. I don't believe that he was literally physically resurrected. I do believe that there was a metaphorical resurrection that makes so much sense to me and that is transformative for me. And, and I have experienced that resurrection myself. Um, so when, he, when the Bible talks about resurrection power, 
that's personal for me because I've experienced that. I've, I've been resurrected myself. And so to me, so much of Christian theology and so much of me engaging the Christian Bible and engaging Christian theology from today and from the last 2,000 years has been liberatory, transformative, and amazing for me. It has been healing for me. And Christianity took so much from me and my people and my ancestors. It took so much. We, I have about 50 words of Tunevo, Chipcha, which is where my family comes from. We have about 50 words. We lost. The language is pretty much lost. It's extinct because of Christianity. I lost so much that I will not, on top of that, lose this incredible tool of healing and liberation and beauty that has been Christianity for me. Because I can hold the nuance of it being used as a weapon of oppression and also having been a tool of liberation for me. And I dropped the weapon of oppression intentionally. I dropped it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I'm holding on to the tool of liberation that it has been for me. And nobody can take that away from me. There is no Christian that can take that away from me. Not after all that Christianity has already taken from me. Not just because of my ancestors, but because of the amount of religious trauma that I experienced inside of the church as a woman, as a woman of color, as a woman of color with a master's degree in theology, as a woman of color ordained inside of the church, being told over and over again, you are against God for just being ordained, being told over and over again that I need to submit to my husband, that I needed to do all of these things that I, I mean, and, and the sexual uh, abuse, and I was never like it was never sexual assault, but the sexual abuse because of purity culture and the harm that that caused me. Christianity has stolen too much from me to also steal the tool of liberation that it is for me. So I'm still a Christian. And if I may, I would say that I have fought with this faith for years. I have fought with divinity for years. We have fought with one another so much. I, When I was studying the book of Genesis, I was like, I'm Jacob. I'm fighting with this God and I'm fighting with this divine thing. And I am not letting go until this God changes my name and sends me out walking in a different way with a limp because I am absolutely transformed by the presence of this divinity. And if you can look at me and say that after years of fighting with this God, after years of fighting with this Bible, after years of fighting with these theologies and being transformed in very fundamental ways from it, everything in my life has changed because of it. If you can look at me and tell me that I'm not a Christian just because I don't believe in the same theology as you, you don't understand what belonging to a people looks like. And I don't have to take your word for it. I belong to divinity because him and I, her and I, them and I have fought. And both of us left that fight absolutely transformed so mm. yeah that is really powerful and yeah i'm in a season where I, I i'm like i don't want the sons of bitches to get to steal jesus from me you know absolutely they don't get to they've taken too much they've taken too much for us to continue to let them take things they've taken too much yeah and, and i don't know what this is worth um, but it just crosses my mind as I'm looking at you on the screen to just think about as a representative of sort of the white cis male leadership of, of Christianity. I was in church leadership for 25 years and 10 years leading uh, a church that, that I, I founded, so to speak. And I just, I, I almost feel compelled to say, I'm sorry to you as a representative of so many people of 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 what we have done and continue to perpetuate for um women for 
uh, people of color for, I, I don't care what any white American kid that grew up in an American school may say today, but we learned that people from south of the border who speak English in a different accent perhaps than we do is somehow less of a human being than we are. Yep. Um, those, those feelings were indoctrinated and inculcated into me through church and school. And it took a long time for me to learn that that's not true. And so saying I'm sorry is as a representation of that church is, is such a small thing, but I feel like I would want to do that. And also just really have a season where we're raising the voices of people who look and sound and believe and live as you do so that the rest of us can see that what we learned about you is wrong. And, and not only wrong, but anti-Christ, as you said. I think it's such a powerful term. It's the opposite of how Christ told us to live. And so you don't have to give me any particular response to that, but I just felt like that would be something that I could say at this moment that would be worth saying. And just Thank offer you. that up. Thank yeah. you. We've been gaslit for hundreds of years. We've been gaslit and told, no, we don't think less of you. That's all in your head. We don't think less of you. So when one of you looks at us and say, no, we have, there is something validating after years and years of gaslighting. Hey, our conversation with Joe Lumen isn't over. Want to find out why Joe says Christians are taught to gaslight themselves? Well, she explains that in our bonus podcast. Our bonus podcast is available to all who are part of the Pastor Paul support community. Want to hear more? Just go sign up at my website, pastor-paul.com. It's absolutely free, or you can give some support to help me do what I do all the more. For those who are already a part of the Pastor Paul support community, the link to the bonus pod with Joe Lumen is available on our community chat board under the announcement tag. Find out more and hear more on our bonus podcast by going to the website at pastor-paul.com and we'll keep talking with Joe Lumen. For now, thanks for pursuing emotional and spiritual well-being with us on the Post-Evangelical Podcast.